0: This week on the Back Table Podcast. So I can understand why more and more IRs are breaking off and going solo, but that practice model doesn't fit for everybody. So for those of the uh, those IRs who are still in a, a mixed IR, DR group, you've got to fight hard for your, you got to, what's the old song? You got to fight for your right to party. Um, <laughs> you got to, yeah. you got to
1: fight. You, you've
0: got to get them to buy into the notion of putting value on clinic time. And I'm lucky I'm in a group where they do, and they know that IRs have to do a clinic. If you don't do a clinic, you're just a technician. And so I would say that if you fight for your right to have a clinic and build that into your practice module so you're not always on catch up in terms of reading out CTs and so on, that's the first thing. The second thing is if you go into deep venous, there is a world of disease out there. I mean, almost everywhere you will find patients who are undertreated.
1: Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, which is committed to all things IR and endovascular. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in, especially any new IR residents out there. I encourage all of you to subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you use to listen and leave us a review. We value your feedback and we're always looking for ways to improve. And if you haven't already, check out our new web app, which we're continuously updating with resources to help you help patients. To kick off today's episode, I'd like to thank our sponsor, RADPAD. RADPAD was developed by physicians for physicians, providing clinically proven radiation protection during CINI and digital subtraction angiography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RADPAD Radiation Protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See RADPAD.com for more information or contact info at RADPAD.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. Let them know you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Our topic for today is iliac Cable and femoral venous stenting. Uh, joining me to walk us through this is Dr. Jerry O'Sullivan from Galway University Hospitals in Ireland. Dr. O'Sullivan, it's an honor to have you on the Backtable podcast. Thank you for taking the time to do this.
0: Oh, thanks a lot, Michael. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. I've been a big fan of yours for a long okay. time. And I'm also a big fan of Rad pat. Every single person in my unit wears it.
1: That's great. What time is it right now in Galway?
0: It's uh, it's time for Red wine. really. It's, it's 6.30. It's,
1: uh, oh, so Jerry, why don't we start by having you tell us about your practice and where this fits in and, and basically how you ultimately, you know, went from starting this to becoming one of the premier authorities in the management of venous disease.
0: Okay. Well, thanks, Michael. So I, my background is my dad was a doc and his dad was a doc and his dad was a doc. I showed a huge amount of imagination in entering medicine. I wasn't very smart as a student. In fact, when I was trying to get into medicine, I misspelled medicine, M-E-D-I-C-I-N-E, three times on the application form. And eventually my dad just grabbed it out of me and hit me over the head with a spoon. (laughs) Because at that stage, all I wanted to do was play golf. And I was pretty good. I played with most of the guys whose names, if you're a golfer, you'd recognize. So the European Ryder Cup captains and all those guys, and I used to beat them. But then medicine kind of got in the way. And so I went into medicine graduated out of Cork, which is in the South of Ireland. Galway is in the West of Ireland. And I graduated out of there in 1990. And then I went to Greece and I met my wife on a beach. I was tremendously disappointed that she turned out to be Irish because we had heard that there was a whole lot of Brazilians that arrived the previous day. And then she says, oh, no, I'm from Ireland. I'm like, oh God. And then it (laughs) turned out her dad was a gynecologist as well. And I was like, oh man, this is like ridiculous. Anyway, that's only 30 years ago. And then I went to England to do my radiology, and I did four years there, and then I did a year of IR in St. George's in London, which was at the time one of the, uh, probably still is one of the best institutions around the world, huge catchment area, ton of vascular disease. And I had always kind of had a hankering for, for a US uh, fellowship. And I was fortunate enough to interview in a variety and I was offered Miami vascular and it's the, the only time I ever get to slag Barry Katzen is, is when I tell him that I turned them down
1: <laughs> and he's,
0: he's so cool about it. It's like, yeah, we wouldn't have taken any, you know, you anyway, because you're such a loser. And so I went to Stanford and they were really cool to be there. And I, I went there actually to learn about aortic dissection. And uh-huh. when I got there, I mean, I saw an absolute ton of aortic dissection and I thought this is the coolest, you know, the, at the time. The whole endovascular revolution was just in its, I wouldn't say its infancy, but I did see one of the first ever EVARS in London in 1996. And I thought, oh, this is just gonna be the way forward. And um, when I went to Stanford then, there was a really close cooperation uh, with the vascular surgeons and um, really cool guys. And I learned a lot from them. Many of the things I learned kind of were applicable to everything really is that they weren't the remotely territorial. They were very keen on sharing knowledge. And they didn't care whether you were a dermatologist, a cardiologist, a vascular surgeon, or an interventional radiologist, as long as you cared about the patient and wanted to do the best for him or him or her. And I really took that to heart and I've tried to abide by it ever since. And so I have a lot of people come to Galway to learn. And I honestly, I don't even bother asking what they do, which seems like, how could you do that? But actually if they bothered enough to come to this remote outpost on the Western reaches of European civilization. They care about their patients and they they want to learn. And so I'm happy to teach them. Anyway, a year in Stanford, three, four years in Chicago in Rush Prez, fantastic hospital. What I learned in Rush Prez was that I came in all guns blazing, ready to do aortic dissection. And I then realized that actually aortic dissection is quite an unusual disease. (laughs) And so... (laughs) You can look and look and look and look. And you know, I tried everything. I had, I was out in the freeway saying, if you have interscapular chest pain, come to me, you know, and that didn't work. And Northwestern would have had a reasonably well-developed ex- program and Rush just wasn't on the map. And I think in the first two years I saw one aortic dissection and in fairness, the guy had no symptoms, so we couldn't treat him, <laughs> but you know, so it was kind of like, oh God, okay. But anyway, uh, at the same time I realized actually, and I had seen quite a bit of DVT in Stanford. Um, and I started to see more and more DVT and I started to realize that most people were kind of walking away from DVT. So the patient would come in, uh, they'd be admitted medically. And then after a week, if they weren't improving, then they'd consult us by which time the patient probably had symptoms for three weeks. Like, I mean, these legs were disastrous by the time you saw them, not immediately venous gangrene, but really swollen, really tense, brawny, purpley brown. And you're trying desperately to do anything for this patient. And even when you got a good result and opened up everything, they still were left with significant symptoms. So I kind of started to believe at a fairly early stage in my attending career that I wanted to uh, remove as much thrombus as quickly as possible. And then after that, I moved back to Ireland and about, I think it was July 2003, I rang up my oncologist, who I'm a good buddy with, and I said, look, have you got any big DVTs that aren't resolving? He said, you know what? I've got a radiographic technician. You actually know her, this lady. She's got ovarian cancer. She's got a huge leg. We've tried everything for, th- for six weeks. Her leg is useless. So I, I-, I came up to go. I saw her, I looked at her, and on the Tuesday morning, we operated. And to cut a long story short, in one hour and 47 minutes, we were done skin to skin. My first patient ever. And her leg improved radically, dramatically, exceptionally, incredibly, and minimal TPA. And I thought, okay, this is the way forward. Right. This is what I want to do. It was one of those road to Damascus kind of like, yeah, this is this
1: is what I want to do. And so the aortic dissection stuff kind of went out the window. Well, Jerry, I'm sorry you didn't have a chance to pursue your career in professional golf because it sounds like, you know, that. <laughs> But uh, you wow. ended up okay. And uh, you know, over the last 20 years, you've had a consistent and pivotal role in helping guide the ideal management of both acute and chronic ill really cable, and lower extremity venous disease. But with the cancellation of this year's SIR meeting, we hmm. certainly missed the opportunity for a formal discussion on one of your more recent contributions, namely the 24-month results of the vernacular trial from you and Dr. K. Sure. Um,
0: I'd
1: like to take advantage of that while I've got you on the air. So for a little bit, you aren't familiar with the trial. Can you summarize what vernacular investigated? and really what we've learned from the second year of follow-up data.
0: Sure. So essentially this is one of the, the Venus stent trials, I suppose in Galway, we've kind of done them all from the Cookshilver Ravina through Veneti Vici, through Bard Vernacular, Medtronic Abre, and the latest coming down the pipe is the Vesper and uh, the Vernacular trial involved the Venovo stent, which is a Bard or now a Becton Dickinson uh, product, a large range of diameters. 20 millimeters down to 10 millimeters, large range of lengths from 40 to 160. So it's benefited, say, from identifying, I would say, holes in others' portfolios so that you can now cover the the range of disease to a large extent in one stent. For the patients who are post-thrombotic, probably you might need a second stent, but I would say on most wall stents, or sorry, cases involving the wall stent, I would need three cents. So there's a bit of a, a trade off there. The Bard Vernacular uh, Venovo study, 170 patients, 21 sites, uh, Europe, United States, Australasia, multi center, obviously, uh, non randomized core lab data. Patients were divided quite um, impressively by the FDA into the non thrombotic iliac vein lesions, or what we call as nivels non-thrombotic iliac vein lesion and those who are post-thrombotic. And they also took patients with acute deep vein thrombosis and contrarian distinction to, uh, to some of the other trials. Essentially, as you'd expect, Nivell patients did incredibly well, sort of 98% patency plus at one year and the same at two years. It could have been even higher than that. I don't have the data right in front of me, but it's really, really high. The post-thrombotics are a much more challenging group. They've obviously already shown the propensity to thrombose. And secondly, their is almost always somewhat compromised. So this trial involved lesions, which extended just into the inferior vina cava, although for the purposes okay. of the script, it was common iliac vein. It's a class two device, supposed suppose, class three. And then as low as the lesser trochanter, but specifically not into the mouth of the profund and not into the mouth of the, the femoral vein. And at, in the post-thrombotic group, your patencies were very satisfactory. The industry, or rather the. The literature standard would have been 74%. That was by the large paper by Mahmoud Razavi, a meta-analysis of the, the large stint group. I think that was in the JVR in, I'm going to say 2015, uh, really good paper. Well worth the read. Mahmoud is one of my uh, mentors from Stanford, very smart man. And so he, uh, he looked at all of those and that was the, the, the number that derived 74%. So I think the bar data was far superior to that. And like, I'm going to say. In the, at one year, I think 88.6%, at two years, 84%. So, um, I've, and pardon me um, to your listeners, if I've got the numbers slightly off. No, that right. The second is was 83%. Yeah, 83%. Okay. So it is, you know, it's, it's, it's good data. It's good data. That's all I can say. What do we learn from it? Well, as you'd expect, post thrombolics are harder to stay open than nibbles. We learned also the, the vernacular or the Venovo stent is very resistant to fracture. There was zero percent stent fractures. This is all a core lab, by the way. So what happened was that I or any of the other investigators took the the, the scans. We used, personally, I, used, I, I use IVIS pretty much in all the cases now. So there's a marker catheter inside. They can measure off that. Then the data was sent anonymized to a core lab. I never even saw the results of their uh, estimations, but I know that they were stricter than I would be normally, and I'm pretty strict. So I, I would hand it to them like it was real data. You know, the, the numbers are real. And so I would say it's it's a very reassuring trial. The stent worked well. It doesn't fracture. It doesn't migrate. Uh, it doesn't move. So for those of you who haven't used it, and I'm not really using it, this as a plug for Venova because I, I would expect that the Abre from Medtronic and the Vena from Cook will be out relatively shortly, I would hope from your point of view. But it's a different animal when you're deployed compared to the wall stent. So typically, say, if I was doing classically, say, Big DVT from the left, There'd be a major under lesion. With a wall stand, I'd be landing the stand well up into the IVC, hitting the right wall of the IVC, and then I'd gradually pull it back until it was still touching the right wall. And I would use, I would oversize it. So I'd use something like a 2090 in the left common iliac vein. I'd use a 2090 in the, in the left common iliac vein, and then balloon dilate to 16 or 18 and get it something like a 16. When you're using a Venovo, you have a much tighter tolerance. So typically I would balloon dilate to 16. I would put in a stent that is 16 and I would post dilate 16. And you can land it much more accurately, much more accurately. Like I would typically have a protruding into the IVC by probably seven millimeters. And I'm not saying 10, I'm not saying 12, I'm not saying three, I'm saying seven. And it is that accurate. There is literally, well, I think with experience, no foreshortening um, and no movement. And I would say that's the same for, You know, most of your listeners, if they're listening to a podcast or probably young, they're very familiar with laser-cut nitinol stents. And it's a stent that really just does not shorten. So if you're used to using other types of laser-cut nitinols, this will do the same. So it's, it's accurate. It's really accurate. And, um, it's got good flexibility. It conforms to the vein rather than the other way around. So, yeah, I think the trials show that it's a, it's a reliable stent. And I think probably. And this is not against wall stent because I've used wall stents a lot, but I I haven't used a wall stent in a good while now in a vein because there's frankly no need, you know, from my point of view.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that the answer to really all the questions I had about that, you know, just what are you still using? Is there still a role for wall stents? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is there anywhere where you're still using them that, you know, that you, you can't get with these? I mean, it used to be, you know, the size of the wall stent was one of the factors that kept people using it. But I mean, these hey. guys... 20 millimeters now they do yeah yeah they do and so typically like m-
0: a good friend of mine is stephen black in in london in the uk he's a vascular surgeon but a really good friend of ir and uh, he'd be someone he's he's uh he's funny he's worth talking to and he's someone we should try and get over to SIR next year because you know nashville is going to be a whole lot of fun and uh, might take president and uh, anyway but he, he used the the vici a lot and so when like he tends to do the cases that everyone else shies away from. So he's doing from renal to groins bilaterally, which is the kind of stuff I, I like as well. Now, I tend not to do many nibbles. I mean, yes, if someone's got gross, swelly wool or extremity, it might improve things. But a lot of the patients that I see are, frankly, slightly obese, and both legs are also slightly obese, and they insist to me that their their left ankle is puppy. And I'm looking at it thinking, mm, it's puffy, but you're kind of puffy all over, really. And uh, how does one say that politely? Stephen Black does, he, he likes, he really likes the Vici, So he does kissing 14 Vichys from renal veins down to just above the groin and they use the barfinger. Yeah, yeah. So it's probably, I don't know, it's probably off-label. I don't know. Everything's off-label. But it's it does have good radial force. I would say the Achilles heel of the uh, Vici, and I would say this, and I've said it many times to Boston folk, is that it's probably a little bit stiff uh, around the ligament, you know? And so any patients of mine who I've seen stent fractures in, it has Mm -hmm. been around that point. And I believe Steven told me the last day we were on some webinar, he said it's about 6%. So, you know, it's not a massive number, but at the same time, it's a factor, you know, 6% is quite high because I mean wall stents don't fracture around the ligament, but wall stents do tend to concentrically narrow, whereas the newer stents tend to focally narrow. And I think that's that's an advantage for the newer guys. On the other hand, if a stent blocks, then wool stents are much, much easier to reopen because right. getting through it, it's it's like a pipe as opposed to getting through one of the uh, the newer boys. They can fish, fish mouth and you can end up putting your wire through the interstices and that's catastrophe. As soon as that happens, you're done. This is like over. Do you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. And so that's happened to me a few times. And so you must not give up wire access with newer fellas, you know, and you must make sure that at all times, like I would go straight from the wire to a large device, like a, a long 10-frame sheath. And if the 10-frame sheath doesn't go through, it means your wire has gone through the intrusted scissors at some stage. So that's something to watch out for. So when would I use wall stance? I would use wall stance going across groins. I would use wall stance to buttress existing laser cut nitinols, there's no point in using a second laser cut nitinol inside one that is already narrowed down. It will not work, at least not in my experience. Wall stents are incredibly flexible. And uh, where else would I use them? Oh yeah. The overlap point is much more important with the laser cotton nitinol. So that's something I've only learned in the last couple of years. And the reason I learned that is that if you take two open cell stents and you overlap them, say by your usual two centimeters or so. The overlap point becomes much more rigid, much more rigid. So what the European boys, and I'm talking about the guys who've done like big numbers. So Olivier Hartung is a vascular surgeon in Marseille, Marja Lugli, L-U-G-I-L-I. And she is a vascular surgeon in Moderna. Rich Graf is an IR. He's now at Friedrichshafen. What they've shown me is that if you overlap the stents, you've got to keep your overlap away from the level of the inguinal ligament. Because that's when you're going to get into trouble, and they're absolutely right. So what they often do is to say they've got a, a complex reconstruction, say from the mouth of the femoral, the profunda, all the way back up to the IVC, is that they will deploy the middle stent first, which was news to me. You know, I like it just seems, it just seems counterintuitive. You know, like I tend to start at one and go to the other. But with if you do that, it means you guarantee your overlap points are south or north of the inguinal ligament. And I don't know if you saw the China Cross webinar the other night, but there's a very interesting paper by a guy called uh, Ching from, uh, from Stanford, and he's done an incredible paper, really, cadaveric studies on iliac venous stents, okay? And what they found was that it isn't the inguinal ligament that is causing compression on the stents, it's the pubic ramus. So it's posteriorly rather than anteriorly, and it occurs not when people flex their knee, like bringing their knee up to their shoulder, but when they hyperextend, like if they were doing, say, a lunge in yoga, you know what I mean? Yeah, and that's where that's where your tightest point is, which is, I don't know, quite interesting. I mean, does it have applicability? Probably not a massive amount insofar as you just want to keep your stent away from the the inguinal ligament zone, whether it's the pubic ramus compressing it or the inguinal ligament, it doesn't really matter. But I've often wondered because... Like I've asked my vascular surgeon, I work with a pretty cool group of guys. I've asked them like, could you do me a, an inguinal ligament, resection? You know, just taken up because I think it's compressing the stent. So I go up to theater, the operating theater, and I I look with them and, uh, and the damn ligament is miles away from the stent, like miles, you know, like 15 mil, you know? And I think this cannot be compressing. It just can't be. So I'm quite interested to see, I think it's Christopher Chang. It's on, you look on the Charing Cross. 2020, it's a webinar or it's a web-based program. It's usually quite a vascular surgical, I would say dominated Congress. There's a lot of stuff on aortas and stuff, which I don't do so much of anymore. But this particular day was deep venous and it was a really interesting, um, hour and a half with, uh, there's some, I mean, there's some seriously big brains there, (laughs) not me, I'm talking about the other guys. And, uh, and I learned a lot from, from them that day, which is cool.
1: So another question about that then, I mean. You know, with the compression of the inguinal ligament or the pubic ramus, whichever it is. Mm, uh, yeah, you know, why would these new stents, VG Venova or maybe the Vesper or the Avra be a problem if they're if they're stiffer? You know, I I would think that maybe that would just make them more prone to getting fractured.
0: Yeah, fair point. And and I would say that I mean, the number of fractured stents I've seen is really, really small, but the people I've got and I saw one lady in particular last Thursday and a really nice lady. She, she had two or three kids. She had a gist tumor in her left, sort of external iliac region treated in Germany a few years ago. And she, then, she had a panacea, you know, sort of a, an abdominal adipose tissue overhang from a cesarean section. And so she went on to a plastic surgeon, plastic surgeon examined her and saw this huge worm going across the pelvis. And he correctly identified it as a a vein. In fact, she correctly (laughs) identified it, which was very helpful. And so I did a scan and she had a left common iliac and external iliac vein occlusion. Big pipe coat across the midline. Uh, She had made her own palma, as it were, palma bypass. And so I stented her reconstructor. Everything went fine with Avicii. And she's presented multiple times with instant restenosis and just dreadful instant restenosis like she can tell you when it starts. She's fully anticoagulated. I know she is. And this particular girl, so the, the one who had the panace, she's reached the nose. She's reached the nose multiple times. i blamed her multiple times. Anyway, she because of the COVID thing, she didn't attend the hospital for the last three months. She came to the emergency room on last Monday, and we scanned her, and it was totally blocked. I tried to open it up over two hours on Thursday afternoon and failed miserably. And my point is that the stent wasn't exactly fractured. It, in fact, it was not fractured categorically, but it had narrowed down to an internal diameter of 3.8 millimeters at the level in where they went. Now this is a 14, 160 Vici, very good radial force. It's a tough boy, you know? And, but the overlap point was it was early on when I say early on, in my experience, I suppose I've been doing Venus standing for 15 years, but I hadn't figured out this open cell, closed cell thing and. The overlap point of the two stents was underneath the inguinal ligament or behind that zone. And she's narrowed down horrendously at this point. And so she's one of the ones that I said, I asked the vascular surgeon, would you mind doing a release? So he dissected the area out and he showed me the distance between the inguinal ligament and the, and the stent and it was miles. It was just miles. It wasn't related to that, you know, but I think the stiffness of the two stents, two open cells together becomes like a closed cell and a closed cell You see, it's not quite as bad as a Palmas, but it's not, not that far different. It's a really stiff structure. So I really try and avoid it in anything, which isn't a straight pipe. And that's why I think Stephen Black's really, Stephen Black really likes these Vichys going from the renal veins down to the say mid external iliac, but not into the groins from below that he uses an Abre or a zilvervena or a venovo.
1: Okay. Now, you know, talking about landing the stents, I mean, are there any quirks with these? I mean, you know, we know there's an art to landing a wall stent. Uh, yeah. Anticipation of how it's going to shorten. I mean, it sounds sure. kind of like we're talking to you. These are, you know, you position them, you deploy it, and that's it to a point like you can with. Actually, okay. that's, that's fair
0: point. You can't reading. resheath. You can't resheath. No, it's a fair point. As soon as the, uh, the first rung has come undone or come uncovered, you can't resheath. So I would say you just spend, I spend quite a lot of time magnifying the the bifurcation point. And I mean, a lot of the cases I'm doing now with two sheaths from the neck, because uh, I put in two 10 French sheaths in the neck and do all the work from up there with the patient, either asleep or awake, they don't really tend to bother too much about the sheaths of their neck. They're, you know, looking out to the left and working from the right neck. I tried at one stage to do left and right jugular veins, but there's a disaster because I had to keep switching back and forth. So Now I do two punctures in the neck. If you do that, you can land a pigtail catheter in the right common iliac vein, pretty much at the level of the, the confluence of the two common iliac veins. And you can deploy your stance such that it pushes the pigtail, which has got a diameter of, of about a centimeter. It can push it to one side, but it doesn't flatten it completely. And that's the level of precision you're talking about. So that now, I mean, having done more and more of them, I don't bother with the title anymore because I know my landing point is 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 very precise, and I, I think we might talk about that later in terms of a paper one of my fellows wrote last year. Yeah, but, aiming yeah. for the bottom corner, aiming for the bottom corner. Yeah. yeah, it was supposed to be. I don't know. I, it wasn't the title I would have wanted because aiming for the bottom corner for me is a soccer analogy. You're just like, you know, I'm yeah, 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 for the you bottom said have it's
1: more field goal.
0: Exactly, but I wanted to have it as a field goal. But then uh, JVR said, "No, this isn't a suitable title," and I'm like. Okay, but it's really what I'm talking about because I'm coming in from the side and you need to land the stent in between the the two goalposts. It was one of those weird ones, but the gist of it is that if you position the patient either prone or supine such that the spinous process of either L4 or L5 is directly between the pedicles, where your wire crosses that midline at, at whatever level, you want to land the stent just to the right of the spinous process, but not as far as the pedicle. And actually, when you zoom it up, it's quite a big space. And um, when I've done that so far, I haven't got cut out. Now, you could say, well, how about somebody with a previous uh, laminectomy? Yes, okay, you're going to get cut out there. Or spine bifida? Yeah, you're going to get cut out there. But uh, so far, it doesn't happen yet. It's it is a pretty precise thing, and we measured it. And then I thought, okay, well, how accurate is this is this? And then I said, well, let's look at it because we actually do a lot of CTV. Because a lot of our patients say are cancer patients, and they're followed up by means of CT, so we get the CT scan data for pre, as it were, and it is a, pretty much a, a, an inviolate principle uh, that you can land. So I don't actually use Ivis to land my stents up at the top end at all. I use the Ivis for the bottom end, for where the profunda and femoral veins uh, split or rather join together, so that I land my stent into the appropriate appropriate dominant inflow at that point.
1: I used the paper actually at one of the sites where I don't have IVIS and it served me very well. It, it went perfectly, but I almost got myself in trouble because I was using a wall stent and, you know, the starting Okay. Was,
0: okay. Filly, okay. And beaching the That's vanilla, right. That's right.
1: Fortunately, I noticed that and, you know, made it a little bit longer, but yeah. It, yeah. It, yeah. It yeah, yeah. Good point. It worked
0: perfectly. Good point. No. Well, it's funny because we had, we actually had a lot of wall stents in that paper, But the reviewers kind of criticized us and said, well, it's a different method and and this, that, and the other. I said, okay, fine. So we'll just take out all the wall And They said, okay. But then afterwards I thought, well, but now it's, I mean, a lot of people are still using wall sense. You know what I mean? So like, there's no point in having a paper which is applicable to only a small minority, but actually it, it is really accurate. And I think, look, if you're using wall sense, you know how to use them. You know how to get to that point. It just takes a little bit more experience and you need to land them slightly higher and then deploy it. And actually the Vici is a little bit like that. Of all of the newer stents, yeah. the Vici foreshortened slightly. Whereas the Venovo. and I would expect you'll, later on this year, you'll get the Abrin, the Vena. I think. I could be wrong now. But I suspect all of those stents are going to come out. And so you'll have a very different landscape, say, at this time next year, you know?
1: Yeah, and I, I look forward to, to getting to that point. I've, I've uh, led a protracted battle to get them in my hospital because even i have done yeah, it. Yeah. I don't know how many wall at this point. I still, just a little bit every time. I agree.
0: agree. It's, it's tricky. I mean, at some level it's kind of fun because it's like, it does, it does demand a challenge, you know, you gotta engage your brain. Frankly, when I'm using the, the Venovo, I I literally turn off brain because I know, like I, I look where I want to go on the screen and then all I do is just concentrate on that point. That's it. I don't look at the stand opening at all. All I do is look at the top landing zone. That's it. Yeah. So you know, and that's you know, and that's fine. But and there is a cost differential. They're much more expensive than uh, than the wall stands. At least they are in this part of the world. The, uh, the wall stand. I mean, I've 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 the wall machine is in Galway. It's this enormous okay. drum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, yeah. it's actually a pretty cool machine. If you guys ever come over, like it's it's apart from the beer and the golf uh, and the surfing. The, the, the Boston factories here and the Medtronic factories here and Coke is down the road. And yeah. There's a lot of some here. But the wall stamp machine is, is, is colossal. It's huge. It's funny. I've had a few patients from the factories, the factories are big employers here. They're like, no way. Hey. Yeah. yeah. I've had patients on the Boston scientific wall stamp assembly, assembly line who I put in wall stents on this particular girl and uh, she was able to find out which of her colleagues had actually made that wall stamp, the one that went into her. You know what I mean? It was kind of funny.
1: What is your your typical anticoagulant or antiplatelet regimen that you do for patients after placing one of these stents? So, if there, I do very few nivels, but if you're doing nivels alone Wait, what, and nothing, tell you know, me what, what, doing, what is nivels.
0: Oh, sorry, non non thrombotic iliac vein lesion. So, oh, what yeah. we would call a May Turner, or I suppose with the advent of IVUS, we're identifying a lot more of right. these lesions around the uh, iliac veins. Classically, it's it's between the right common iliac artery and the sacrum, so that would be the left common iliac vein. But there's also lesions. There's quite a few lesions in the right external iliac vein, left external iliac vein, and even right common iliac vein. So these are all non thrombotic lesions. It's a little bit of a tricky group. These patients present with often they're referred to me as lymphedema. We do a lymphoscintigram. It's often a little bit delayed, but the lymph nodes are present. We then do IVUS, we identify a whole load of areas of stenosis. Now, the video trial by Paul Gania from, he's from um, Connecticut, vascular surgeon, good guy. They said that 61% was the magic number. That was the percentage of stenosis that would lead to symptoms, or in other words, treating those patients would be a benefit. Now, every patient is individual, but I would say I probably go go for more like 75%. I certainly don't go on 50%. So if they've got a 50% stenosis in the left common of the neck vein and they've got a bit of ankle swelling bilaterally, do I treat them? I don't really, you know, I think it's kind of a bit... Yeah. You know, you're kind of like, who are you treating really? You know, I don't, I just don't feel that comfortable because often these are young women, they're in their thirties and forties. I mean, what, you know, like this stand has got to stay open for 50 years, you know, so like you're, you're asking a lot, you know, and, and I do feel uncomfortable. I'm much more comfortable in patients who've had a DVT, whether it's acute or the chronic post thrombotic or cancer patients, cancer patients, I throw the whole kitchen sink at them because, you know, they may only have a few months left on earth. And I want those months to be leg swelling free. And I, I'm a huge believer in that. But uh, oh, so in terms of anticoagulation, so if they're a NIVIL patient, so non-throbotic gliothane lesion, antiplatelets on their own are absolutely fine. And I have no problem with you dual plav or some sort of a dual antiplatelet agent. I don't really care. A friend of mine, Peter Pappas, he's a vascular surgeon again from, the, from um, 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 New Jersey, I think. He's put in nearly 350 of these with no anticoagulation, you know. So I think that kind of, you could argue lots of ways, that particular one, one might say, well, maybe he's standing too many. He's a very honorable kind of chap. He's not like, he's not a cowboy by any manner or means. And yet he's had no re Now, either that means he's not following them up, but I'm pretty sure he does, or because they've got a 14 millimeter stent, absolutely virginal veins on all sides, they're never going to get a thrombosis anyway. So I think really the uh, the conversation applies almost exclusively to post-thrombotic patients. And in post-thrombotic patients, you're then looking at what do you use? And I would go with low molecular weight heparin for the first two weeks, partly anti-inflammatory, partly because I can then give them non-steroidals for their pain because every single iliac vein stent patient gets back pain. And early on, I learned that warfarin and non-steroidals don't work well, and non-steroidals and NOX don't work well either. So low molecular weight heparin for two weeks is good. I almost always get them back for an ultrasound at that two weeks. See what they look like. I insist on seeing their tummy. Uh, I know that sounds really, really childish, but I want to see the bruises. I'm a bit of a. I need to put my finger into the the side of the of the wound created by the Roman soldier before I believe it. If they've got no bruises there, I'm kind of wondering. Okay, what are we doing here? You know, uh, what do you because, mean? I mean, I'm talking. I expect to see. I want to see the sites. Where they've been injecting the low molecular weight heparin. You know? Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I know that sounds really, really childish, but no, not at all. Uh, I've just got burnt over the years, and I would beat myself up massively on these patients. And then, you know, a few months later, I'd be realizing, "Hang on a second. I, I one really interesting guy. He was a police officer about three or four years ago, and he presented with no more five or six years ago. He presented with DVTs, and I looked at him and he presented outside the three or four week window. And so I didn't thrombolize him. I anticoagulated and put him on stockings. And then he presented with a breakthrough PE while on anticoagulation. I'm like, holy guacamole. So I I sent him to my hematology colleague, uh, who is this young, really intelligent lady called Ruth Gilmore. And she's just a little pocket rocket rock star. She's just brilliant. She just identifies all sorts of little niches. But anyway, she, she threw the kitchen sink at him. He didn't have a factor I lied, and he didn't, he didn't have antiphospholipid or whatever, and so on and so forth. So I see him back about six months later. His post-horbotic syndrome has got worse again. And so eventually at this stage, I start to smell a rat. Now, he had arrived each time without his wife. A little bit unusual, mid-40s. Most of the time, if the husband isn't improving, the wife attends. So I then probably broke every ethical code in the book, and I rang up his pharmacy, his, uh, his actual pharmacist. And said, uh, "You've got this patient, and um, I put him on um, low molecular weight heparin followed by a NOAC on these dates. Can I just ask you, between you and me, and I won't you ever mention your name, how often has he filled a prescription?" And uh, and I'd I'd made a particular point of asking him, you know, casually, oh, yeah, "Do you like do you use, do you find it difficult to get hold of the NOACs? You know, he lived out in the country, and he said, "No, no, no, it's fine. I always go to the same chemist." So I knew he went to the same chemist. Anyway, she said he had filled his prescription two times out of the previous six months. So he wasn't taking the damn stuff. And of course, then it all started to make sense. And then I got him back in. I said, look, pal, you've been, frankly, F-star wasting our freaking time. We've been throwing all these thousands of dollar tests at you. You just haven't been taking your tablets. It turned out he owned a farm. His police officer salary wasn't paying enough. He was working nights as a night watchman, working days as a police officer. His life was in shit. And so... When I got to all of that, then I kind of understood, okay, look, I can understand how this is all going to crap. He's not wearing his stockings. He's taking his warfarin. Everything's okay-ish, but he does have bad post-traumatic syndrome. And so what I learned from that, and Stephen Black has corroborated this again a few times, that until you trust the person, until they're intelligent, don't use a NOAC, okay? And I know that seems very arbitrary. And if you get, I would say generally that women are smarter than men when it comes to their health. They take it more seriously. If you say to them, I really need you to take this medication, otherwise you'll die. Men kind of laugh and go, yeah, whatever, you know, devil may care attitude. I'm Brad Pitt. You know, I don't need this shit. Uh, Whereas the women kind of look at you and say, okay, fine, I'll do that. And so a lot of my initial consultation is to decide on how smart or how otherwise the patient is. If they're really smart and they're willing to, if they've already looked up the dose of NOAC and they're asking me, what would you rather went on Zerouto or Pradaxina or a pixaband or a liquus, then I'm kind of thinking, okay, we got them buy-in here. I, I tend to go for liquus twice a day. This is my own personal favorite, but to cut a li- very long and loquacious story back to your original question, low molecular weight heparin for the first two weeks, see them back. And then if they're doing okay, then I transition them to warfarin for the first six months and then no acts after that. Now, these would be in my difficult post-thrombotic patients. And obviously I tend to get the worst ones from around the whole country, the ones that nobody else wants to touch because they've failed several times.
1: And last question for you is in terms of follow-up, do you do any imaging or is this strictly clinic follow-up, follow their symptoms and see how they do?
0: Okay. So every single patient gets a day one ultrasound before they leave the hospital. If they're going home that afternoon, I want to scan them myself that afternoon. If they live locally, I'll get them back the next day. When I'm asking the sonographer, the technician, I just I I said, I just want to see flow to flow, color color flow, wall to wall. I don't care how they do it. Just show me that. And they usually send me a WhatsApp video and then hunky-dory, they're out the door. Then I try and see the back two weeks. If the patient is very reliable, I might leave them go for a month. At the month, I do an ultrasound. Uh, I do a CTV at six weeks. So I'm doing between two and three imaging studies on every single patient up to six weeks. And the reason is that the vast majority of the patients fail, or of those patients who fail, vast majority fail in that six weeks. So once they get beyond six weeks, yes, there is a late drop-off rate, but usually by then I've already flagged the fact that, you see, the CTB is quite useful for showing instead restenosis, whereas ultrasound is better for flow and and physiology and augmentation, respiratory and so on, compressibility. Mm So the CTV is better at showing incendiary snosis, particularly if they're in any way obese. And I suppose over the years, <clears throat> I've learned the importance of identifying really good inflow. So if their inflow is disastrous, I walk away. And I learned a nice technique from some boys in France few years ago called direct CTV. So we inject into the foot on the ipsilateral limb with the compression stocking on, drive the contrast up through the deep circulation, and then you see which vein preferentially the blood flows into the groin. So, you know, it's, it's pretty much even Stevens between femoral and profunda. But when I see a lot of the the teaching of Raju, Suresh Raju in in River Oaks in Mississippi is right. But one area that I would disagree with him on is that he always punctures the femoral vein in mid-thigh. Now that's fine if the femoral vein is the dominant inflow, but if the profunda femoris is the dominant inflow, then he is essentially stinty across the mouth of the profunda, which I think is a really bad idea. So more and more now, I switch to the jugular um, and go from there. I avoid the femoral vein if I can. Yeah. So I, I'm a big believer in the inflow, and we use direct CTV to quantify that. If you've got good MRV, that's good too. It's obviously lower radiation and so on and so forth. But CTV does have its advantages. That way.
1: All right. Well, I think that covers just about everything. Is there anything else?
0: Oh yeah, crisscross. Let's we talk briefly about that. Patients with aniliofemoral DVT, which extends down to below knee, if you're good with ultrasound and good with a needle, puncture, the posterior tibial vein is, is great. If you can't, obviously puncture the popliteal vein, but that only addresses the above knee stuff. So if you want to go south, then you can go crisscross. If you puncture the popliteal vein, you can go south and clean up the popliteal vein. Now, it's quite tricky technique, but on occasion when the posterior tibial vein is inaccessible or I'm being too cat handed to get in, It's quite useful. So yeah, I think that's about kind of the limit of my deep experience. It's what I would say, a lot of IRs are worried about practice. You know, they're worried about getting encroached upon by vascular surgery. They're worried about cardiologists. They're worried about this. They're worried about that. I would say that people they got to worry most about are their own diagnostic radiology partners. That'd be the first thing I'd say because the DR boys... Uh, are really, really good at reading films and they're really good at generating revenue, but they place no value whatsoever on your clinic, your outpatients, and so on and so forth. And that's a tricky mix. And so I can understand why more and more IRs are breaking off and going solo, but that practice model doesn't fit for everybody. So for those of the, uh, those IRs who are still in a, a mixed IR, DR group, you've got to fight hard for your, you got to, what's the old song? You got to fight for your right to party. <laughs> um, you gotta, for, yeah. you gotta fight anyway, no, you gotta fight for, you, you, you've got to get them to buy into the notion of putting value on clinic time. And I'm lucky I'm in a group where they do, uh, most of my colleagues are U S trained and they, they know the deal. So they were, you know, they're Pittsburgh or Penn or MD Anderson and so on. And they know that IRS have to do a clinic. If you don't do a clinic. You're just a technician. And so I would say that if you, Fight for your right to have a clinic and build that into your practice module so you're not always on catch-up in terms of reading out CTs and so on. That's the first thing. The second thing is, if you go into deep venous, there is a world of disease out there. I mean, almost everywhere you will find patients who are undertreated. So, you know, you can touch onto the lymphedema group. You can touch onto, I mean, the biggest area of all is venous ulceration you got p- patients with venous ulceration, they've seen, they've had plastic surgery consults, they've had skin grafts, they've had hyperbaric chamber treatments, they've had expensive dressings, they've had this, that, and the other, and no one's looked at their deep veins. So you go in there, you look at the deep veins, you know, you stent them and you treat their varicose vein reflux and all of a sudden their ulcer heals. And let me tell you, all you need is two of those patients in any vein ulcer clinic and you will be inundated for years because You're probably the first doctor who's really, really dug into this and really, as opposed to just looking for a quick band aid fix and, you know, um, doing some veins, doing a bit of cutesy laser, you're looking at the difficult ones. You're looking at the post thrombotic patients, the patients who've never known they've had a thrombosis patients whose lives are like, I had a, a very interesting guy about three years ago and I won't bore you for long, but essentially. He had, he had developed his first venous ulcer in 1978, I kid you not. And he saw me in 2016 and he had attended everyone, and I mean everyone, including a lot of European experts. We saw him, we did a direct CTV. He had a distal IVC occlusion, bilateral common vein occlusion. We stented him. I actually had some of the boys over from the UK on one of these things called InCathLab, which are pretty cool. If you ever get a chance to look at them, they, they show all sorts of cases. Yeah, you subscribe. Anyway, we were done in well under an hour, well under an hour. We went off for a nice lunch and I saw him back in my rooms, my clinic about six weeks later, and he brings a huge big plastic, black plastic bag. And and I'm thinking, okay, you know, I've had, I've had people giving me gifts of wine and I've had food and I've had all sorts of stuff. This guy's got this huge plastic bag and he comes in and I've got medical students with me because I'm teaching and he says, right, I just want to show you something. So he gets out a knife. And at this stage, my, my alarm bells are going. I'm thinking, holy guacamole, what the hell is going on here? He gets a knife and he slashes the plastic bag and out spills a myriad of towels, sheets, socks, trousers, compression stockings, blankets, and so on. He said, now, this has been my life for the last 38 years, 38 years. He said, when I got this disease, I was a young man. You have no idea how self-conscious I was trying to get into bed with my wife the first night, and she's asking me, what's the gooey stuff on your leg, you know? It it affects every single aspect of their lives. And anyway, he said, and within six weeks, it was actually, he said, it was actually the 44th day. After day 44, my ulcers had healed. He said, now, I know I should be grateful. And this is what made the most impressive impact on me was, I know I should be grateful. Because yes, he sorted me out after 38 years, but his words, what the fuck were the rest of the bozos doing? You know? <laughs> and you know, he was right because he had asked the question, he had asked the question specifically, is there anything else we can do, you know, and nothing had happened until December 12th, 2016. It was really bizarre, you know, and he, he's become, ah, he's not a friend, like, because he's, he's probably about 79, but he's, he's a cool guy. And I'd see him from time to time. He comes back in. He, I mean, I don't even bother seeing him in my clinic anymore because he's doing fine. He's intelligent enough to know that if he gets, you know, if he were to get anything on his legs, he comes back to me. He's, he's on lifelong anticoagulation and is absolutely assiduous in take it. He doesn't bother with stockings anymore because he said, I don't need them. It, it, it was transformative for him. And I got a bit of a kick at that stage because I thought I knew, I wouldn't say I knew everything about devianist, but I knew a lot about it. But when you treat somebody with D venous disease and their ulcers heal, then that's a game changer. That's like a, that's a night and day job. And so I know that there's a, a big focus on IR and tetic- critical ischemia, And I know that arterial critical ischemia is huge, but I would say to a lot of IRs that venous disease is just as big. These are younger patients and they will benefit hugely from your expertise. So I'd really advise them to at least think about going after that section section of the market and uh, you know it's, it's something that's really worthwhile and it makes you feel uh,
1: like it's very much worthwhile getting up in the morning to do it jerry that's a perfect way to wrap this up i think okay thank you cool. sincerely we really appreciate you coming on and doing this pleasure, uh, My pleasure. and I, we look forward to doing this again jerry that was good michael thank you very much for your time right. See you. thank you bye-bye now